You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. So suddenly you've really profiled an individual based on their likes and dislikes, and you could really use that to then craft a very convincing phishing or deception or fraudulent campaign against that individual. Hello, everyone, and a warm and loving welcome to our (laughs) Hacking Humans podcast brought to you by the CyberWire. Every week we delve into the world of social engineering scams, phishing plots, and criminal activities that are grabbing headlines and causing significant harm to organizations all over the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with Matt Lewis. He is Global Research Director at NZZ Group. We're talking about cyber criminals using AI. But first, a word from our sponsors at Know Before. Time travel would be a particularly powerful tool in the hands of any overworked InfoSec professional. Think about it. Being able to see the future and know which malicious emails would be missed by all the existing filters. Your ability to stay one step ahead of the bad actors would rise to a whole new level. Unfortunately, our sponsors haven't cracked time travel just yet. They are, however, introducing a new phishing protection product that can block and remove dangerous phishing emails before your users even see them. Stay with us, and in a few minutes, you'll learn how. All right, Joe, before we jump in here, we've got some follow-up. What do we got? Yes, we have uh, Sydney who writes in and says, uh, on our conversation last week with S-bombs and H-bombs. Actually, it may have been two weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, But Sydney says, I think this White House slash industry slash NIST, the National Institutes of Standards and Technologies, and now FCC, that's the Federal Communications Commission, proceeding is of greater relevance to IoT security than S-bombs. And we'll put a link in the show notes, but it is uh, uh, an FCC proposal for cybersecurity labeling for smart devices. Right, kind of a the the smart device version of a nutrition label. Well, this yeah, this one's voluntary. Yeah. So it's more like the smart smart device uh version of the parental advisory label. Oh, okay. So it that that's something the record company does to appease people yeah. uh, in our government. Uh, and don't get me started on the PMRC, Dave. <laughs> I'm an old 80s censorship hater. Uh, I see. So um <laughs> So it's it's uh, I don't know I think if we mandate this for these devices I mean it's voluntary at this point but I I think this is something we should mandate mm. with some kind of uh, you know explanation of what cybersecurity testing if any has been done on these devices right. but a voluntary program is a good start at least that way you can identify the ones that are compliant with the voluntary program and not compliant with the voluntary yeah it gives program. you a little bit of choice it does yeah yeah. All right, very interesting. Uh, we got another piece of follow-up here. This is from AM, is that right? AM, AM, yes. AM writes in and says, Hi, Dave and Joe. As pretty much everyone writes, I love the show. Well, thank you, AM. I often forward specific episodes to friends and family when you cover a scam that seems particularly relevant for them. Outstanding. Good idea, Yeah, love way. it. In the spirit of spreading the word to help protect each other and with the holiday season upon us, I want to share something that happened to my son last Christmas. He received a $50 Nike gift card from his aunt. 
But when he went to the Nike store in San Francisco a couple days later, he was told that the card had a zero balance. Hmm. You can imagine how that feels to an excited 13-year-old a couple days out of Christmas. To make matters worse, the Nike store told us that they couldn't help us with this and instead directed us to the phone number on the backside of the card. When I spoke with Nike support, they were able to see in their system that my sister-in-law purchased the card in California on the 18th of December. Mm -hmm. They could also see two charges on the 20th and 21st in Texas that depleted the card of its funds. My son didn't receive the card until the 25th, already with that zero balance. Right. I remember you covering a gift card scam where the scammers would place a different UPC code sticker on the card. So when you try to add credit to the gift card, the money is actually being added to the scammer's card. But that isn't the scam here. The funds were actually added to this card and then siphoned off before my son received it, and I don't know how. Ultimately, what truly angered me was how Nike handled it. After going back and forth with them a few times, they simply said, gift cards are similar to cash, and Nike.com is not responsible for lost or stolen gift cards. Interesting. Good stance, by the way. I found this self-serving denial utterly infuriating. (laughs) It's not like my son lost the card or got scammed into entering the code into a phishing site. Right. My sister-in-law entrusted Nike with her money. They happily accepted it, but won't accept any responsibility for safeguarding it. Mm -hmm. Due to how they handled this, I have stopped buying Nike products altogether, costing them many times more than the $50 it would have taken them to make my son whole. But while my personal beef is with Nike, I'm sure other companies take a similar stance. So I advise friends and family to just avoid gift cards altogether. They won't protect your money, so don't give it to them, hoping others can avoid a similar loss. Well, Joe, I mean, yes. cash is king, right? Yes. <laughs> this is what I like. What AM? Uh, this is what I like about what AM said here. He said ultimately, uh, what truly angered me was after going back and forth. They said. Gift cards are similar to cash, and Nike.com is not responsible for stolen gift cards. Right. So, guess what? Why would I even buy your product? Why would I even buy your gift card? Right. Why wouldn't I just give my nephew $50 in cash next time? Yeah. And say, uh, spend it wherever you want. I don't care if you buy Nike gift cards or not. You know, go go out to GameStop and buy mm-hmm. some uh, buy yourself some video games, mm-hmm. right? Uh, these, these kind of things. Uh, I agree with you, Dave. Cash is king. And when I'm talking uh, when I'm talking about people and giving gifts and I don't know what to get them, I don't buy them a gift card. And I haven't for a long time, not because of, of this, but now this is another reason why I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's, it's pretty hard for someone to get your cash in an online scam where they never meet you, where they never <laughs> right. interact with you. It's not impossible. Right. They can they can scam you out of your cash via via these cyber threats using ATM, uh, cryptocurrency ATMs. We've seen that. Mm-hmm. But they're not just going to take it out of your wallet from across the country, Yeah, uh, which is what happened here from California to Texas. Halfway across the country, this money was stolen from this 13-year-old kid. Do you have any speculation on what this, how they managed to pull this off here? My guess is that the aunt uh, bought a card that had the code already scratched off and didn't know about it. Mm. So somebody probably went into the store, scratched off the code on the back, the little thing that has the uh, the number on it, cleaned it up nicely so it didn't look like it was uh, supposed to be covered. I right? see. Completely right. removed it. Right. Then she went and bought the card. Mm-hmm. They have all the information. They just keep checking the balance. As soon as they see a balance, they quickly go on and 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 uh, drain the balance. Right. That's my suspicion. I don't know the answer. No, that's totally plausible. Right. (laughs) 
All right. Well, thank you, AM, for writing in and uh, for both of our listeners for writing in this week. We do appreciate it. And, of course, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us. It's hackinghumans at n2k.com. Just give cash. All right, let's dig into some stories here. I actually have two because they're short. All right. Uh, The first one, uh, I guess you call it a press release from the IC3. That's the uh, FBI's... Internet uh, Internet, Crime Complaint Center. Internet Crime Complaint Center. And uh, they have uh, basically their guidance for preventing uh, holiday shopping scams. We're getting to that time of year, Dave. We are getting into that time of year. Uh, so I'm not going to go through all of this, but this is uh, the FBI's public service announcement. Uh, information for buyers, information for sellers. You know, lots of folks are selling things online, maybe to make a little extra money to uh, to be able to buy gifts for other people or sure. t- to give out cash. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, and this is really a good rundown of uh, lots of, of handy tips. So not only do I encourage our uh, listeners to check this out, uh, well, again, we'll have a link in the show notes, but also just send this one around. It's a nice uh, nice thing to send around, uh, lots of information all in one place, and it's helpful, too. It's coming from the FBI, which I think gives a little bit of gravitas that yes. uh, maybe your friends and family will uh, take it more seriously. <laughs> send, send this note from the FBI. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and then, so my other story here is actually from Ars Technica, and this is a story written by Ashley Bellinger. And uh, this is about the folks at Zelle, uh, which is uh, one of the cash apps. Right. Uh, Zelle, I believe, is one run by a lot of the banks, right? Sort of the yeah, one I that think the, so. the banks, they use it in-house. It's kind of their side brand for online trading of Money. <laughs> right. I, I, I think you're right. I think it's a consortium of banks. Yes. So it's it's yes. like a group of banks has gotten together to provide this customer service. I don't know how any, like a smaller bank, becomes a member of this consortium. Cons- consortium? Consortium? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Easy for you to say. Yes. Uh, I don't know how uh, smaller banks get involved in this, but they can. Right. Uh, but I don't know if there's fees or anything. But hey. Yeah. Go ahead. So... Like any online service where money is exchanged, there's been plenty of scamming Absolutely. using Zelle. Uh, and finally, the Zelle has changed some of their rules on their platform that they will refund money uh, for people who've been scammed on Zelle. Interesting. Yeah. Um, have they also increased the or changed their policy to prevent these scams from happening? Well, I, this seems like a huge liability. I think what they've done here behind the scenes is they've implemented some things that makes it easier for them to claw money back. Ah, okay, good. So that and that's what they're implementing here. But I, I think it's this is good news. You know, that is I, good news for for a long time. Uh, things like Zelle. What are some of the other ones? PayPal. Um, Oh, what's the other one that people use all the time? Venmo? Venmo, that's the one yep. I'm thinking of, yeah. Um, when you lose money on those, that's usually pretty much it. Yeah, PayPal has good protection. Venmo does not. I think Venmo's owned by PayPal, PayPal, isn't it? Is that right? I think so. I'm not, Hold I'm on. not sure. Allow me to double check. You go ahead with your story while I <laughs> look up who owns Venmo. So, uh, anyway, I think this is uh, good news that uh, Zelle has updated their terms here. And just make it a little easier for people who find themselves falling victim to something mm-hmm. to hopefully claw that money back. Venmo is, in fact, owned by PayPal. Okay. There you go. At least if right. Google is to be believed. We will have a link to uh, both of these stories in the show notes. Joe, what do you have for us this week? Dave, my story comes from Sergey Gatlin over at Bleeping Computer. Okay. Uh, Dave, those wacky North Koreans are at it again. Uh. So, 
what they're talking about here is a Microsoft report uh, talking about Blue Norhoff or Noroff, or as Microsoft likes to call them, uh, Sapphire Sleet. Mm-hmm. Once again, Microsoft with a really cool name for the really bad actors. Yeah. Uh, these are a financially motivated threat group. And since they are North Korean, I'm going to give you one guess as to what they go after. Mm, money. <laughs> uh, yes, but what kind of money? Oh, cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency, that's right. Yeah. Um, in the past, these guys have targeted people with social engineering attacks uh, by asking them to uh, to install things. Or here, here's some documents that have malicious, uh, malicious code attached to them. Mm. Now they're changing it up. So they get on LinkedIn... And they start acting like they're a recruiter from a crypto company. Okay. Uh, and then they say to the person, uh, we need you to, to go to this website. To It's a skills verification website. And they have this entire website set up that looks like a skill verification website. Hmm. But guess what? It's a malicious website, Dave. Hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. so unfortunately, this article from Bleeping Computer does not go into any technical details. Not that... You know, we like to spend a lot of time on technical details on this podcast, but, you know, I do. Yeah. <laughs> but safe to say that the website is malicious. Um, additionally, because you you need a username and password to access this website, it makes it really hard to analyze it. Oh. Be- because the outside of the website, you know, the un- unauthenticated part is not malicious. It just looks normal. Hmm. So in order for a malware analyst to to analyze this website, to see what's going on, they're going to need a username and password, which they may not be able to get. Hmm. So they're going after uh, cryptocurrency people on uh, people that work at cryptocurrency companies on LinkedIn. So if you work at a cryptocurrency company and you get an unsolicited job offer from some new company that wants you wants you to take a skills test, be aware. Hmm. Uh, I, and I shouldn't just say this that this is just the one threat model, so I shouldn't limit it to this. But this is an opportunity or a tactic that can be used anywhere. It doesn't have to be just for people in the crypto business. Right. Malicious actors who are targeting uh, government officials. I can absolutely see how this would be ap- applicable to inside government employees. Hey, go take this skill t- skills test uh, on our site. Uh, can you do this now while you're at work? Mm. Right? Wouldn't that so, be nice if I could get on the inside of a government network somewhere? Right. So so just so I'm clear here, the they're, um, they're going for what? Well, this the Sapphire Sleet organization is trying to get into the cryptocurrency organizations again. I see, and they're so they're looking for credentials. Well, they're I think they're looking to actually penetrate into these networks. Oh, okay. Uh, or get access, get any access they can, uh-huh. uh huh, so that they can get inside the the cryptocurrency companies network. So is this a if they're getting people to install something nope, to, for the test, or this all they, happens on a, in well, a browser? Again, it doesn't go into a lot of technical details, I which see. is where my frustration comes with this article. Uh-huh. Uh, but they are using the website to either install, probably install something malicious uh, or do some other malicious stuff or maybe just steal info info if they can. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these info stealers work this way as well. If you can, if you can break out of the uh, sandbox of the, of the, the browser, uh, which a, this this is a North Korean group. The North Koreans are remarkably good at what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you've ever listened to um, what's the podcast that covers the North Koreans, we've had the people on this show. Uh, it's a great podcast. Um, it'll come to me in a minute. But <laughs> if, if you um, listen to that podcast, you'll hear that these guys are really good at this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, but this tactic is can be is can be applied anywhere. 
is yeah. a good tactic, I think. It's a good social engineering tactic. So the lesson here is to be wary of people reaching out to you unsolicited on LinkedIn. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, you know, I don't know. I, I kind of have mixed feelings about these skills assessments. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem to me like uh, more of a cattle call HR response to a, to a problem. Yeah. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm on board with them as well, uh, either. I don't know how good they, they are. I guess it's a pretty common thing for people in it technical is. jobs, though, right? It is. Yeah. I think it's uh, more common for, uh, for entry-level people or lower or early career people than it is for later career people. Yeah. This article also points out that they, they move people to another platform once they've successfully interacted with them. Right. Which, of course, is always a red flag. Yes. That's yeah. correct. I forgot to mention that. Sorry. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's another red flag for for any of these attacks is the pla- the platform move. Mm-hmm. Don't don't go to the next platform. Never go to the second location. Right. As they say. Right. All right. Interesting stuff. Well, again, we will have a link to that in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Sean, who works in a company uh, that we will redact the name because we don't want to say this because this is a real company. Okay. <laughs> uh, but there's a story that comes along with this. Sean started getting someone uh, named Stephen on LinkedIn reaching out to him. So again, the unsolicited LinkedIn uh, message. But Stephen wanted to validate a job offer he had received from Sean's company. Hmm. Uh, and Sean was kind enough to include the chat log. It's a pretty long chat log, but I can summarize uh, these guys had a discussion where Stephen asks Sean to verify that the hiring manager, mm-hmm. right, I'm saying that with air quotes, worked at the company uh, and that the company was real. And Sean pointed Stephen to some online resources like, hey, we have uh, an SEC 10K. You can go see that we're a real company mm-hmm. uh, and that everything matches up there. Uh, but he but he looked through the company address book and didn't find the hiring manager there. So he said, now I don't find this guy's name, but that doesn't mean he doesn't work here. Let me reach out to our recruiting team and see if I can find the, this alleged hiring manager in our, in, uh, if, if they know who he is, Mm. uh, because if anybody knows the recruiting team would, uh, but then Steven actually got the offer letter and immediately recognized that it was a scam. So fortunately nobody got hurt in this, uh, really interesting story, but these employment scams are still going on. Uh, I put the file, the the actual letter, it's a PDF in the directory. Mm -hmm. So why don't you go ahead and read it? And remember, we're redacting the name of the company. Okay. (laughs) Um, I'll just say Acme. Acme, that's a good one. (laughs) It says, employment offer and letter, message from Acme Incorporated. Congratulations on joining Acme Incorporated. Attached to this email is the company employment offer letter you need to sign. You are directed to hello sign this letter, read carefully, append your signature, and email back the signed offer letter. Please note that on acceptance of this employment offer, the following equipment will be delivered to you to set up in your home office. The funds for the purchase of the equipment will be made available to you by check prior to purchase and delivery. Apple iMac Pro, dual monitors, external hard drive, headset with microphone, set of furniture, copiers, card filing systems, file cabinets, file folders, sorters, HP LaserJet Pro, graphics generators and software, data storage and microfiche, digital storage, inks and ribbons, surge protectors, computer hardware and software, pencils, papers and post-it notes, high-speed internet access, and a stress ball. 
You are to attach to this document a copy of your valid ID for employment confirmation and email back with a signed offer letter. After signing this offer letter, the check to pay you for the equipment listed above for your mini office will be mailed to you. Then you will begin training as soon as you take delivery of the equipment. Note, upon signing of this contract with the company, you are bound by law to not destroy any of the company property. Equipment sent and delivered to you for your work or checks sent to you for payment. Contravening any of these rules will render this contract null and void, and penalties will be incurred. Accept the assurance of our best wishes, and please stay safe during this pandemic. Warm regards, Human Resources Department, Acme Incorporated. <laughs> so a couple of things stick out uh, in this, in this uh, equipment list. Yeah. Number one, who uses microfiche anymore? <laughs> that's true. The library. That's right. That's the only place I know. I, where... Do you do? I mean, do they even still have microfiche? Ah, I haven't seen a microfiche reader in probably thirty years. No, in fact, I would hazard to say that my kids probably don't even know what one is. Right. Yeah. Oh, what an! It was a pretty cool system, actually. Yeah. You could you could keep entire newspapers for months inside of one file cabinet. Yeah. Or inside. Yeah, it's very small. Right. Um. Hard drives are smaller. <laughs> right. Hard drives are smaller and can hold much more information. Right. right. Uh, I don't know when this was written. Does this have a date on it? I, I'm imagining this was recent because our listener just sent this to us. But by my recollection, Apple iMacs no longer come with this 3.2 gigahertz, 8-core Intel Xeon processors. No, Apple no longer makes the 27-inch uh, iMac Pro. Okay. So this that's an old... Yeah. It's a, it's a no longer offered model. Yeah. Right. So this is old information here. Yeah, 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 yeah. And HelloSign is a real uh, product from Dropbox. Okay. So, interesting. Yeah. No, there's... I like the stress ball, Joe. Yeah, stress I think ball, that's, yeah. That's... I think it's a little flair. It's a little touch, it, you know, just a little... This company cares about you. Right, exactly. Acme, I mean, Acme wants you to have this... Yeah, yeah it's a scammer. Yeah, you're good, and you're going to need that stress ball after they steal your money. Right, which is what's <laughs> going to happen. So what happens next here in the scam, for, for people who haven't heard this before is uh, they send the prospective, quote, new employee a check. Uh, and they say, you're going to go to this website and you're going to buy all this equipment. And the employee deposits that check in their bank account and then goes and buys the equipment. The equipment never arrives because the, the shopping site is, is the scammer's site. Mm. The money gets transferred to the shopping site. And uh, then the check bounces. Right. And the... Uh, the the new employee is out the money for the check. Yeah. So they get no equipment, they've lost all that money, and the check that was sent to them is made out of rubber. Correct. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Sean, for sending that in. We do appreciate it. And again, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for our catch of the day, please email us. It's hackinghumans at n2k.com. We were talking about mitigating cyber threats to your organization before your users even see them. The new Fish ER Plus from Nobefore was developed to help you supercharge your organization's email security defenses. How? You get a unique crowdsourcing advantage. More than 10 million highly trained Nobefore end users from across the globe catch and report malicious email that makes it through all the filters. Nobefore's Threat Lab then validates it with AI and with human researchers. Fish ER Plus blocks phishing threads other tools have missed 
and proactively removes them from your users' inboxes. Not quite time travel, but we think you'll agree it's a vital capability in any InfoSec professional's arsenal. Visit knowbefore.com slash products slash fish er dash plus to learn more. That's knowbefore.com slash products slash fish er dash plus. And we thank Knowbefore for sponsoring our show. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Matt Lewis. He is a global research director at NZZ Group. And our conversation focuses on cyber criminals who are using artificial intelligence. Here's my conversation with Matt Lewis. Yeah, absolutely. So GPT and tools like it, large language models, they they sort of came to the scene pretty quickly and seem to be uh, a lot more powerful than I guess many of us anticipated uh, and typically what happens with you know anything powerful like that, this scope for abuse as well as normal use. And so we've started to see, I guess, some examples of where um, hackers or adversaries might be using these tools and capabilities for their own gain, whether that's to gain some efficiency gains in enacting some of their attacks, whether it's crafting better worded phishing campaigns, that sort of thing. And one of the things that we were looking at recently was uh, profiling individuals uh, using um, using tools like GPT based on the the prompts that people were using themselves uh, and finding that those prompts can reveal an awful lot of useful personal information about individual that attackers or adversaries might be able to use for some sort of um, uh, unlawful activities against that individual. Well, can we go through some of the specifics there? What exactly did you all find? Sure. So I was quite curious about the fact that when you type in your prompt to a tool like ChatGPT, it's typically saved. You can disable it by default, but by default it is enabled. And your your history, your prompt history will be stored over time, very similar to your web search history. Um, So what I thought about doing was seeing if ChatGPT itself could analyze a bunch of my prompts and tell me something about myself. So I gave it just... 50 of my prompts from my early day experimentation, my personal use of GPT, and asked it to profile me in terms of what sort of person am I, what's my likely profession, my age, my ethnicity, that sort of thing. And it came back with an alarmingly accurate um, uh, sort of description about me, uh, working out that I typically work or likely work in cybersecurity, that I'm probably in a senior position, uh, that I am likely a middle-aged white man, uh, I just thought that was a very interesting um, activity, but we can sort of see or extrapolate where that could be used by adversaries who might have access, unauthorized access to someone's chat history, be able to very accurately profile them based on seemingly fairly innocuous information, i.e. that the prompts that we type into tools like ChatGPT. And what are some of the scenarios where you could imagine that an adversary could get access to that sort of chat history? So, good question. So it's typically, everything is cloud-based these days. So if you have ChatGBT, for example, you might use it on your laptop and have the app on your phone. And so there's a login to ChatGBT, and if you have a subscription particularly. 
Um, so given that there's a login, that means there's user credentials. And so it's the usual thing that we come up against in terms of how well people protect their online accounts. If somebody can gain an authorized access to your GPT account, i.e. guess your username and password, then they will have full access to your prompt history. And that's why we always come back to the usual recommendations around enabling two-factor authentication where possible. But again, by default, a lot of these large language models um, out of the box come just shipped with username and password. So there's a bit of a user education piece there about how we need to better secure our large language, large, sorry, our large language model access uh, and the the accounts that we use to, to, to gain that level of access. What are some of the potential perils that you all see here? If a bad actor were to get access to someone's chat GPT uh, history, uh, what sort of things could they potentially use that for? Yeah, so by using a tool like GPT itself to um, to analyze very quickly someone's personality based on maybe, you know, it could be hundreds or thousands of prompts. So initially it's that speed, but then the revelations could be used for more targeted spear phishing. So suddenly you've really profiled an individual based on their likes and dislikes, and you could really use that to then craft a very convincing phishing or deception or fraudulent campaign against that individual. There could even be things like revelation about pattern of life, you know, how the person operates when they're in and out of their home or where they might be traveling when they're away. So that could be a nice potential opportunity for burglars, that sort of thing. It's that sort of that rich tapestry that we can quickly identify about an ind individual and their their personal life and their um, the personal livelihoods is what could be exploited. I guess similarly, just in general, in extortion, you know, if you manage to go through efficiently thousands of prompts and work out that someone has a vulnerability of sorts or a, a gambling condition or something that could be used to to blackmail uh, that individual uh, for some you know uh, for some ill gain. You know, it strikes me that um, I think a lot of folks, because of the the kind of delightful nature of GPT that perhaps that leads them to having it lower on their list of, of risk potential. You know, it's a playful thing that you interact with. And so I could imagine a lot of folks not really thinking there's a lot of danger there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for, from my own experience, what I felt, because I use GPT daily for a number of different tasks, it's, you know, it's very great for efficiency gains and getting some new insights. I've even found myself you know, quite easily opening up a lot more in my prompts as I sort of relax and converse with it, almost like it's another individual. You almost The way it responds to you is typically quite kind and friendly. So we tend to personify these technologies in a way that then makes us open up even more uh, and be a bit more friendly, but therein be possibly a bit more exposing in terms of the the questions that we're asking about our lives, maybe our daily work. So, yeah, there is a big level of caution needed about, you know, just how much information we are giving up to these uh, tools and capabilities. And is it accurate to say that the that systems like this you take the information that you give it and then roll it into their larger corpus of information? Yeah, so that could happen depending on configurations. So just to use GPT for an example, uh, you can specify within your account whether you want your prompts and the various responses to serve as a an update mechanism to 
ChatGPT itself to allow it to continue to refine itself. So you've got that sort of hive mind aspect whereby I guess they ideally would like that to be able to refine the models, but you as the consumer, I guess, ha have some level of control if you're not comfortable with that and don't want your prompts and responses forming some level of future update to those larger language models, then you can probably find that configuration somewhere buried in your account settings and disable that. But again, it's the sort of thing that usually is enabled by default, or you might not necessarily get that explicit confirmation that that is enabled by default. So definitely a key recommendation to people is to go through their account settings and fully understand what they are in control of in terms of the, the personal information and the prompts and how and where they are used by large language model uh, manufacturers or vendors. In terms of, of securing the accounts and, and using them responsibly here, I mean, what are your recommendations? As you say, there, there is a lot of utility that can come from tools like this, but I suppose it, it needs to be balanced. Yes, that's right. So um, organization-wise, you know, within businesses, it, it first starts with policy. We're, what we see at the moment, we're working with a number of organizations, is because these tools came about so quickly, uh, the companies are struggling to keep pace with a policy. You know, what should our policy be? What should we be allowing our staff to say or not say within tools like this? So in the first instance, coming up with a policy that works for the business and that minimizes risk as much as possible is quite a key step to get everyone on that baseline. Then, as I mentioned earlier, there's the enabling as much security as possible on the accounts where users are using, so use of multi-factor authentication, and then understanding the privacy and granular controls within those accounts, like do you want your prompt history stored or not, and do you want your prompts and your responses to be used by large language models to continue to refine themselves. So there's those sequence of from policy to online account management to settings, I guess would be the, the main trio of activities that I would recommend people go through to completely minimize their risk and exposure through use of these tools. Where do you suppose we're headed with these tools? Do, do, you, do you envision a future where they're more and more integrated into our daily lives? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the horse has sort of bolted in a sense whereby they, they've already proved their value in a number of sectors in terms of efficiency gains and productivity uh, improvements. So that's certainly not going to go away. And certainly, again, within the enterprise, we're seeing uh, the likes of Microsoft, for example, with their Office 365 suite, with desires to go full pelt with these types of tools within their co-pilot range, whereby it will be inbuilt, it will be a natural way of working in the future. I think there's even intentions to have personalized individual large language models operating, say, within your own Office 365. So it learns to uh, know your common responses to emails so that it can auto-suggest responses much more quickly. Uh, so we'll, we'll have these personal models tailored to how we operate as individuals, for sure. So it's definitely where things are headed. Uh, it's, it is a, it's an exciting time, but equally uh, slightly scary time in terms of you know, how we manage the, the likely risks in, in this domain. Joe, what do you think? Matt is right about these large language models, or LLMs. Uh, they came on the scene very quickly. Yeah. And were a lot more powerful than 
I know I anticipated. I think that was the general idea. That's why these things no. caught fire. Right. It was a sensation. Right. Yeah. It, it, because these things were really good at what they did. Yeah. Um, and like ChatGPT, everybody talks about that, but there are a bunch of these models out there now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, you can even use a product like um, LM Studio and then download your own models and have your own private conversations with these things, mm-hmm. which I've done, uh, which is interesting. And I've also uh, finally caved, Dave, and, and started up a ChatGPT account a couple of weeks ago, or uh, last month. Okay. Late, la- early last month. Um, interesting that your prompt history is saved on ChatGPT by default. And you can tell a lot about people from their prompts. Okay. In fact, I had only uh, entered nine prompts into all of my interaction with ChatGPT until today when I played with a little bit more and now I've entered significantly more. Okay. But here's, I asked it to tell it, tell it about me based on the nine prompts it has most of it was correct. A lot of it was general, almost like horoscope stuff. You know, okay. like, you know, stuff that you could say to anybody and they'd believe. Uh, but there was one thing that was pretty interesting. It said, personal context, your department is involved in security research and you have specific concerns about the constraints exposed by the existing contracts on your ability to perform research on the security of the cloud environment, hmm. which is kind of what I asked for in how to write a letter. Right, I need mm-hmm. to I need to write a letter talking about this, and I wanted to see how ChatGPT did in generating the letter for me. Didn't do great, but I did ask about this. But it somehow understood that I worked in a security organization that focuses on the research of security topics, including cloud security. Okay, interesting. Nine prompts, and it gets that. What do you What do you mean by prompts? This is nine things that I've sent to ChatGPT. Okay. So, so based on so nine rounds of information that you had submitted to ChatGPT, yeah, nine questions asking it to do something, right? It was able to glean yes. these conclusions about you based yes. on those. Okay. Yeah. It it also said things like um, you are concerned about the tone of your writing, uh-huh. uh, which which I am, um, and it, it based that on the fact that I it, it said I will message uh, this person privately, and I said I don't like the term privately because that sounds kind of creepy. Um, I, chat GPT came up with some other wording that was good, but it's these prompts, you know, you can interact with this thing and it can provide different responses based on your, on your feedback to it, which is, you know, everybody knows what chat GPT is. I'm not telling anybody anything new here. Huh? (laughs) Well, let me, let me just add a little color here. So while you were talking, I logged into my version of chat GPT and I have the paid version. Yep. And I said, who is Joe Kerrigan? And it went out to uh, the internet. Uh, it, I, it told me it was searching the Johns Hopkins website. It said, Joe Kerrigan is a seasoned professional in the field of cybersecurity, boasting over 17 years of experience as a software engineer. His expertise spans a diverse range of areas, including computer and software security, microcontroller development, data migration, data integration, data warehousing, and network communication. Kerrigan is affiliated with the Johns Hopkins University's Information Security Institute, where he serves as a senior security engineer. His work at the Institute involves both technical and outreach responsibilities, indicating a dual focus on the practical aspects of cybersecurity, as well as the dissemination of knowledge. He is also widely recognized for his contributions to the cybersecurity community through media and educational outreach. Notably, Kerrigan is a co-host of the Hacking Humans podcast, Woohoo! Yeah. which has gained significant recognition, including being listed in the New York Times for its in-depth coverage of the dark side of the internet. Hmm. The podcast discusses various cyber threats, such as social engineering scams, phishing, and other cyber attacks. 
that affect organizations and individuals globally. Additionally, Kerrigan's role extends to public engagement as seen in his appearance on the Smashing Security podcast, where he has contributed to discussions on a range of cybersecurity topics. His involvement in these platforms showcases his commitment to educating the public on cybersecurity risks and protection strategies. Pretty, pretty accurate. Yeah. Yes. Uh, actually, the first part of that is just my bio that I think I wrote and, okay. and, and it got put up on the page. The, uh, the bit about the podcast is essentially what you would always say at the beginning. Now that you've changed it up, we do have to keep it fresh, Dave. Right. Um, but, uh, the, but there is a lot in there that, it's, that it, it has synthesized from yeah. places where I can't identify. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> when I get home, I'm going to have to say, who is Dave Bittner? Yeah. Well, it, it knows, believe me, <laughs> it knows me. <laughs> it knows me. Yeah. And well, anyway, I, let's, let's get back to the conversation right. with Matt and we can talk about, cause we could, we could do a whole separate show on Dave and Joe have fun with chat GPT, right? right yeah, we could. <laughs> uh, if someone gains unauthorized access to your chat GPT account, mm-hmm. uh, that is a real risk. So make sure that you're using a good password on that account. Uh, that should be one of your high value accounts. Mm. Treat that almost like I, I would say almost like a bank account or an email account. Yeah. Those are those are where you put your spend your most security mind power. Right. Uh, you know, shelf space. Um, you know, I, I don't care if you don't use I would not be offended if you told me I don't use multi-factor authentication on my streaming accounts. Mm-hmm. I'd be really concerned if you said, oh, I don't use multi-factor on my email. Who wants to get in my email? Right. Everybody wants to get into your email. Yeah. Because that's the keys to the kingdom. Right. Yeah. So ChatGPT, same same kind of thing. If they can get in there and they can look through everything and they can summer, pull out all your all your chats with a text editor, all your prompts with a text editor, and send that to another and say, tell me about this person who asked these questions, ChatGPT may be able to come up with some vulnerability about you. Yeah. That I mean, this terrifying. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is terrifying. Matt's Matt's statements here. Really, yeah. I, I'm glad that I have a good strong password on this one. Yeah, on this thing. Uh, clear your history if you're concerned, right? If you have, they will delete your history, right? Um, and change your settings. Make sure your security settings are a match to your sensitivity to risk. Mm-hmm. If these things are, if if you don't want anybody to ever find out that uh, what you asked ChatGPT, go ahead and set your uh, your settings in that app or or interface to not keep your history. Yeah, it doesn't do that by default, of course. Um, but actually, I I think there might be value in it in past chats. I found value in that today when I was asking it to do what I did. Mm-hmm. So this is why I say it has to be your risk assessment. You have to do your own risk assessment here. Yeah, uh, and be careful what you ask these things. Yeah, you know? if you really want to, if you really want to ask something that you don't want to ask ChatGPT, go ahead and download LM Studio and ask some other model, right? <laughs> that you have on your computer that you can you can just. Delete when you're done. Yeah, or just go to the public library and ask there. <laughs> public library and do it. That's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> create a new account. There you go. All right, well, our thanks to Matt Lewis for joining us. Again, he is a global researcher at NZZ Group. We do appreciate him taking the time. We want to thank all of you for listening. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors at Know Before. They are experts in helping users do the right thing through new school security awareness training.
That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. A quick reminder that N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.